My senior year in high school, uh, I had been advised by a friend of mine. I was going to going to go to the same college as he was, and it was a tech school. And he said, "You need to take calculus before you go." I had moved from New York uh, to Massachusetts for my senior year, and um, and the education systems there are, are slightly different. Um, and so when I when I said this to the guidance counselor, he didn't think anything of this because in uh, in New York uh, they have a thing called Math 12, which includes your pre-calculus. But that's in Massachusetts they that's kind of a part of a different class, and and so um, they assumed that because I had had trig in New York that that I had had pre-calc because that's the way Massachusetts does it. So I decided, uh, genius that I was, to take calculus with no pre-calculus. Um, that didn't really turn out that well. Uh, I did pass, but only because I'm pretty sure that the teacher felt sorry for me. And, uh, and I refused to drop it because I was, I was too proud. I was like, I'll fail. Um, I also stunk at algebra. That didn't help my cause any. Um, and so, and he actually informed me that most of the mistakes I made were algebra mistakes, not calculus mistakes. However, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is in calculus, um, well, my senior year, we had a foreign exchange student named Stefan. And Stefan was from Belgium. And Stefan uh, was, uh, no, he was all right. He was, a, he was a pretty cool guy. But he was, uh, he was a, a junior uh, in Belgium. And, and Stefan was going to lose a year uh, of, of his education uh, when I say that, what I mean is he was going to go go back and take his uh, his junior year over. That's when they graduate over there. Uh, he was going to have to retake his junior year. Now catch this, because our senior education was not up to the standards of Belgium's junior year. That's how bad our education system is. Sorry, educators. That's just America, right? And um, and so uh, he was in my calculus class, which did not. Really, there was there was like it was small schools, like nine of us in the class, and there was Stefan, there was the rest of the class, and then uh, you just keep going, and you'll around the end of the sermon you'll find where I was. <laughs> so there was this moment of elation that we all had at one particular point in time uh, when we had a teacher named William Crosby. He called himself the Cros. You'll either get that or you don't. So. Um, the cross was walking around and he stopped over Stefan's so shoulder and he said, what did you do there? And there was this breath of elation from the rest of the class. And then it was broken up by this phrase, oh, you did the shortcut method. Like, ah. like ah, Stefan had learned in 10th grade advanced calculus beyond where we were in, in high school, as high school seniors, the shortcut method. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is the shortcut method uh, in our ministry. The, the catch-22s uh, that, that we like uh, so much. Um, and I do not know what that was. Um, when I talk about shortcuts in ministry, I'm not talking about copying sermons off the internet. I have never done that, I promise you. Um, but um, 
I'm going to turn to Matthew chapter 4. We are prone to shortcuts, and Satan is well aware of this. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, he says, Jesus was led up in the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And the devil took him up to a very, very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, um, I'll give you all these things if you will fall down to me and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Well, I want to talk about the setting here uh, just a little bit before we get into this. Uh, I want to talk about the state that Jesus is in. He's in a, a state of weakness. I, uh, a little while ago, I was into a show called Alone. It gets boring after a little while. It's the same thing. A bunch of people out in the woods starving. Okay. You see that a couple of times, and it's pretty much the same thing. But, but some interesting things I learned. Now, now, they were up in Alaska, and Jesus is not in Alaska. Uh, but, but you see these people trying to survive in the wilderness uh, and, and, and not doing a, a really good job of it until, you know, until one by one they're like, oh, I've got to get out of here. And, and I, I, and, and, or some just being, you're getting out of here. We're not waiting for you to call us and ask, you're coming. You're not in good shape. Uh, you've lost too much body weight. You've lost this and your, your fingers are turning blue or whatever the thing is. And, and, and you look at the condition that people are in after they've starved themselves for 40, 50 days. This is the condition that Jesus is in. And, and one of the things that's interesting in that is, is how much it, 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 it doesn't just affect your ability to do things in this rough terrain. Jesus is in rough terrain. He's on the mountaintop somewhere or a series of mountains. But your ability to think and make good decisions. Hunger affects your ability to make good decisions. Extreme hunger. Your, your body just relies on a certain biology. Your brain needs certain things to make, come to good conclusions. And Jesus... On one hand, we go, well, he's, he's getting in a closer spiritual state with God. And at the same time, he's doing something which is severely limiting that capability. He is severely limiting his mental capability, deliberately, to make good sound decisions. And it is, and you wonder, why wasn't Satan doing this the whole time? Why wasn't Satan tempting the whole time? Satan is waiting for the right moment. Satan is waiting for Jesus to get at his absolute worst ability to make a sound decision. And that's when he's going to come to him. And he's going to come to him with three things. I'm going to talk about those things. Why would Jesus do that to himself? 
Why would Jesus put himself and tap his mental, all his physical reserves on purpose? Well, I believe he's trying to test himself to his absolute, most absolute limits. Can I still be spiritual because I've got a ministry to run? And if I, I, if I can't do it in a controlled setting, I'm going to do it, put a controlled setting here and really kind of try to duplicate the type of difficulties I'm going to have over the next couple of years. I, I want to see if I can do this. I'm not going to do this from some cushy chair somewhere. I'm going to do this really hard. I'm going to be hard on myself. I'm not going to eat. I'm going to lose 30 pounds or 40 pounds of weight. Try hiking around a mountain. In the heat. And see if I can still resist. And so Satan comes to him in this condition. And I want to look at the three things that that he does. First one, he, Satan begins where it's obvious, I think. The, Satan, uh, or the tempter came to him and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, he's doing a couple of things. First of all, he's working on his hunger. That's the obvious, right? But he's also working on his pride here. If you're the Son of God. If you are, or if you... That, those statements, you know, well, if you're really so smart, or, 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 you know, you, you can just feel someone pushing your buttons. This happens all the time with kids. Oh, I bet you can't do that. A double dog dare you or what, you know, whatever the thing is. Like, so I bet you really don't know. I bet you really can't do that. You can't. Whatever. And then something, some stupid thing that your friend is, wants to watch you try to do is coming next. And you're going to be dumb enough to do it. Because he's challenged you. But what Satan is really doing is inviting him into the first of our catch-22s. Remember, catch-22 is a, an idea where the doing of something is going to be counterproductive to the goal you're trying to reach. Right? And that's this idea. Satan wants him to do something, and it's going to be tempting for him to do it to accomplish something. But the doing of that is going to end up counterproductive to the thing he wants to do. And what does he want? Trust. It's not just that he would be giving in and obeying Satan. That's bad enough in and of itself. Jesus is going to start his ministry. And for three years he's going to sit there and tell people to trust in God. And before he even gets off the first mountain, before he gets out of the, the, the first thing Satan's working him over is on trust. Do you trust God? No. Jesus, what does he have to prove? He could intellectually, he, remember, he's compromised in his capacity. It would be so easy to say, what do I have to prove? I just went without food for 40 days. I'm going to die without ever having come close to this. I'm just saying, right now. 
On my deathbed, they're not going to have went without hunger for anywhere close. Or went without food. This man starved for X amount of days. It's not going to come close to 40. He's got nothing to prove. Well, I already done it. That would be the easy thing to say. If you fall into the shortcuts, listen, just do it. Get out of here. Take a shortcut. Get some food in you. Get down the mountain. You did it. And oh, by the way, you get past these other two temptations. Win-win. Well, that's the easiest, believe it or not, of the things I think that Jesus is going to go through. But it short-circuits his entire ministry. If he gives in here, it short-circuits his entire ministry by failing to live up to the one main thing that he's trying to get his followers to do, to trust in God. Well, there's another one. He doesn't give up there. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5 and 6 says, The devil took him in the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so you don't strike your foot on a stone. Uh, and this, I believe, is a reference to his reputation. Uh, there's a picture here. This is, a, this is actually over there. This is a, uh, a replica that you were looking at what the temple might have looked like. And, and from the, the pinnacle of the temple there, uh, what you're looking at there kind of over on your left-hand side is what was referred to as Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch with all those, those, those pillars. Um, and uh, it's a pretty good drop. Pretty good drop right there, around three to 450 feet somewhere, as estimated. That's a pretty good jump. Three to 450 feet, somewhere in there. And to the south, on what's on your left side is this big courtyard. Well, you can see that pretty good from there. And over uh, the beautiful gate, if you ever read the Bible, it's called the beautiful gate. Uh, it goes over the Kidron Valley. That's over on your right is that, that gate coming out there. You can't maybe really see it. And there's a stairwell. And well, that all looks, it kind of makes the, this picture makes it look really a lot smaller than it might be. But, but you really wouldn't hardly, I mean, they would look like little ants from where you were standing there. That is, that is monstrous. And, and, and the whole, anybody coming in to the temple from any direction or from any of, of two of the, the, the two main directions would have seen Jesus up here. He wasn't out in the wilderness now. He was right up there. Thousands of people coming in and out would have stopped and said, I wonder if he's going to jump. <laughs> and this is about reputation. I got up on a train bridge uh, one time. I've told you probably that. Some of you might remember that story. About 25 feet from the water. I do not like heights. Some of you are familiar with that. I got up into Cam's uh, uh, deer stand. That was about what, 15 feet. I don't know what that is. 
didn't like it so much. Right? So that was that was that was doing. And I'm harnessed in up there. Uh, I got up on a train bridge. Friends, we were going to go swimming down the Des Moines River. And uh, while I was in college, and so we did that. Got, they got me up there. I'm like, there's no way I'm getting up there. They got me up there. Uh, then I looked down, and then I climbed back down, and then they, you know, proceeded to harass me, push my buttons, and got me up there again. I climbed down a second time. This is not the end of the story. They harassed me more. And they're just jumping off like it's nothing. I, I'm like, I stand down here and it looks like nothing. It looks like it's just simple. And you get up there and it's like, oh, I'm getting like, it's like, is the air thinner up here? It's only 25 feet up here. But man, that looks like it's way down. They got me up a third time. I'm getting ready to say, that's it. I, I'm tired of climbing up and down this train bridge in a boat. Coming down, some people fooling around in their, in their you know, motorboat. And stop right there. Now, I, can, you, I don't care about my friends. You can, you can call me. My friends can insult me all they want, but not the strangers. I jumped. Well, what are you going to do? All these people and my reputation with people whom I do not know, nor ever will, was really, really important to me at this point. <laughs> Imagine thousands of people. You're going to be sitting there saying, oh, I'm the God of the creation of the universe, and la, 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 and thousands of people going, eh, that's true, that's in the Bible. The angels will carry you. If you're the Messiah, you just do that. Mmm, this is a toughie. What is Jesus going to do? He can take the shortcut. And he can even rationalize this so much. You know, Jesus' ministry, we talk about how impressive and how many people and crowds and, and things there were. Three and a half years later, his followers fit into a house. I know we, we think of the 5,000 people on a hillside, and that's pretty impressive. And we think of all of those, those people in the crowds following him and, and, and Hosanna and all that. But at the end of it all, there was 120 people. Jesus worked and did all of that stuff for 120 people is what he left here with. We don't think of that. How much, I wonder how much easier it, in his mind it was. I could start, man, do you know how to start with ground zero and having that many thousands of people see me before I've done one thing? I'm going to be doing miracles here in a little bit anyway. How easy the rationalization would have been. And he would have short-circuited everything that he was trying to accomplish. Where's the gospel supposed to start from? Jerusalem? We're in Jerusalem. Temple? I mean, it all makes sense. I could just do this. It would be so easy. And yet, by the accomplishing of this task that he would be doing, he would short-circuit everything 
that he is trying to accomplish. It's catch 22. Now we come to the last one. Last one's a little tricky. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, I'm going to give you all of this if you will fall down and worship me. Now, the common interpretation of this is that Satan takes him up to some mountain. Okay, that's in there. And he shows Jesus some vision of everywhere. You know, here's a Rome, and here's this, and here's that. And he shows them all the visions of all the world kingdoms. Here's Beijing, I guess, and I don't know. And he says, listen, you know, all this money, all this stuff is yours if you listen to me, if you just bow down and worship me. Okay, so I have some questions. First of all, if this is a miraculous viewing of the world, why did he have to take him up to a high mountain? You can do that from anywhere. Right? Save the time. Right. That's the first question I have, just looking at this and analyzing it. And second, what does glory mean? Does glory intrinsically mean wealth, or is there something else that glory could mean? I think that's an important question. But the third thing, the, the third question I have is, when it comes down to it, doesn't a temptation have to be tempting? That, that's, that, that to me is the important thing. A temptation has to be tempting. If Satan wants me to do something, this is not a thing that Satan will do. Satan will not come up to me and go, if you do that, I've got some liver and onions. <laughs> my mom, my mom's all over that. But me, liver and onions is not my... That is not to be eaten. That is the oil filter of the body. I am not interested. I can understand how a man with a physical body, because it says he became hungry after 40 days, is, that's a temptation. But a man who has lived for eternity in heaven is not going to go, yeah, gold coins. <laughs> That, to me, I just, maybe, but I do not see how Jesus is, is remotely tempted by that. There are things there that Jesus is tempted by. There are shortcuts. There's, there's a catch-22 here that Satan is playing on. I have no doubt. <clears throat> so let, let, I always want to draw a couple of conclusions here from, from, from some of the things in this text. I think they were local kingdoms, for one. The, the word world, we use that a lot of times, and we don't mean the entire globe. Right? The world around you. I say that in the sermon all the time. You say that, right? Well, we, we don't mean that the entire sphere is actually located right around Waukesha. I mean, we've kind of geographically understood a little bit more about our world than that. It's an idiom. Yeah, our world. We know what that's talking about. This is the area. Jesus came to the lost sheep of Israel. That, that's where he was. He was about this area. Now, there are mountains. They're not extremely high. They're about 3,000 or so feet high above sea. But you've got to remember there are only a few 
miles from sea level. So that's, that's actually kind of a dramatic rocks. There's a number of them from which you can see from Judea into Syria and Samaria and Lebanon and Arabia. I'm on a clear day, which is almost never clear, but there's always humid and stuff like that. But amazing views. I don't think glory is about the money at all. I think this is just a this is a think so. But to me this makes more sense in terms of what Jesus is wrestling with, and this is where the temptation comes in. I think this is about his influence. I, I think Satan knows what Jesus is after. He's after people. Hey, listen. And even Jesus said, Who is the prince of this world? Satan. Satan, listen, I have all the influence around here. All those people down there, I know what you're after. You're after those people. I can make this easy on you. Jesus, I can make this really easy on you. I can just leave them alone. I can just not even tempt them. I, can, I mean, you're going to go through a lot of pain and suffering, I know, because I'm going to see through it. I can make this really easy. I don't have to do that. You just got one little thing for me. You see how easy. A person compromised in, in, in his ability to make sound decisions because of his physical state would go, man. Yeah, oh, watching the easy chair, watching alone, and I'm like, well, just tough it out, man. Tough that out. I was hungry the other day. I had to go out and get wood. I'm like, forget this, man. This is annoying. I don't want to. I don't want to do anything outside. That's five minutes. I'm like, ah, well, I'm taking one trip. That's it. I survived one trip. When you're compromised, that's oh, those elements. They they wear you down. And so, Jesus' ministry was always in jeopardy. Always in jeopardy. There was always a, like this key moment. It's always ah, and he's running from getting out of the temple and trying to do this and it seemed like there was always a moment that was a crucial moment <coughs> and I can just start with all this influence kind of like similar to the last thing I can start with a reputation instant reputation instant influence and I don't have to have constantly fighting Satan but if you do that you short circuit everything and this is where I want to talk about us. Our inclination is for simple solutions. We like the simple solutions. Now, I'm not saying that we should voluntarily overcomplicate matters. That's, that's not what I'm saying. The easy ministry is so attractive. I just did a little Google search on huh? 
ways to make your ministry easier and things like that. And uh, interesting what the shortcuts were. You know, website after website had a lot of similarities. And then we break them down into a couple. That's a couple of ministries. And, just, and I, just for a second I thought, well, I wonder what it would be like if Jesus was here doing ministry based on these people's advice. And these are the shortcuts that people on Google would tell Jesus he needs to be doing as a part of his ministry. First of all, you need gadgets. Jesus needs gadgets. Uh, one of them actually, uh, I was like, I can't believe I'm reading this. It was like, my ministry is so much easy because I have these Bose noise-canceling headphones uh, that enabled me to study at Starbucks. That was, that was the, the big draw there. Okay, and it was a, that guy had 35, literally 35, a list of them, all equally stupid. <laughs> but we like gadgets. We're impressed with gadgets. And they are shortcuts. I don't know if they're counterproductive, but they are shortcuts, and, and I do think they short-circuit us sometimes. We'll move on. Aesthetics. Oh, how, how many thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars have been spent on aesthetics? Decor. We must have the decor. And it betrays an idea that this is where ministry happens, right here in these walls. And this is not where ministry happens. Uh, a current trend, I, I heard this twice on vacation. Uh, debriefs. Do you know what debriefs are? Yeah, well, church debriefs are, are after Sunday service. Having to. I have a year debrief here uh, today. After every Sunday, they go over what worked. What worked? Uh, what illustration in your sermon worked? Uh, what song? That song really wasn't cohesive. Or micromanagement is the word I've always used for that. But it's all about aesthetics. And people pour their money and their effort into an hour and a half when ministry doesn't happen here, really. Ministry doesn't happen. Ministry happens where you live in your world. And the third one, amenities. Uh, that's low-hanging fruit. Uh, the Starbucks and the Foyer is the stereotypical one. <laughs> I first saw that in about, like, I think 2007. I'm like, are you kidding me? Um, here's one. That look, look a little bit more familiar. I saw a video this week of... Um, the Wisconsin, Wisconsin Council of Churches. And they are all about returning to virtual church. Mm, very, very, very big on that. 
even before the most recent development, however, statistically, some congregations were all excited about this new structure, making this a new permanent structure because, you know, isolation and depression worked so well <laughs> that we should have this as a permanent church model. Some things aren't perfect analogies. Uh, some of these things are not sinful in and of themselves. It's kind of hard to come up with a, with a perfect analogy for bowing down and worshiping Satan. Uh, it's not something that happens every day. And yet these are shortcuts that you can kind of see some similarities. So shortcuts, Jesus, why don't you just do this little thing and, and it'll make your ministry so much easier. And down the road, it makes things harder. Down the road, it is counterproductive to what God is trying to actually get accomplished. It's immature. It's misguided to expect those things to carry ministry. They're a catch-22 because we, they become our focus. And, and, and we hope that this is going to be the silver bullet that... that that really reaches the lost with the gospel. Investment of time and people cannot be replaced. Not with all the Zoom meetings in the world. Not with all the gadgets. Not with all the wonderful technological whatever amenities and decor that we want to pour money into. It will not replace time. Jesus knew that. He knew it was about trusting God and working a very simple equation. Put time in people. In the end, it will be better to have 120 that love unconditionally. And will serve unconditionally than to have thousands and thousands of people who are there for coffee and donuts. This is, this is the time for us to become a church of substance and to be a church of substance and project that. Because every other church out there, I don't know about everyone, but based on my Google searches... They are projecting gadgets and gimmicks and nothing of substance. Be different. It's great marketing. You want marketing? Here's marketing. Be different. Offer something real. Offer your time. Offer yourself. Um, The prevailing religious culture around us is struggling and coming up with every way to obsolete themselves. Really. Do not look at that like, like the Israelites looked at and said, Oh, we need one. We need to be like everybody else. Oh, we're behind. No. 
Stay away from that. You want to be different. Trust me. Offer yourself in your ministry. Offer something of substance. And that is the pitfall. That is the catch-22 to avoid.